and welcome to Linux Action News, our weekly take on Linux and the open source world. This is episode 27, recorded on November 12th, 2017. I'm Chris. And I'm Joe. Hello, Joe. It's good to be connected with you again. And as we're recording this particular episode, Bitcoin is on a bit of a nosedive. Yeah, which is a bit surprising to me because I thought it would rally after this Segwit 2x fork was called off. Yeah, we talked about this fork a couple of weeks ago on the show, and it was that that big idea of increasing the size of the individual blockchain storage to two megabytes. Yeah, it was kind of a compromise between original Bitcoin and Bitcoin Gold. And it was looking like it was definitely going to happen. And then at the last minute, they called it off. And so I don't understand why the price has dropped, really, because I thought that yet more fragmentation in Bitcoin would have been bad for the market. I agree. It's kind of odd, too, since the official reason for calling it off was to decrease potential user confusion in the next several weeks and to keep people focused on mainline Bitcoin. So now we're seeing a big drop. And I've been watching the Twitters and uh, a few people I follow that are involved in Bitcoin and blockchain development projects. And they're saying that there was a huge reduction in processing power on the Bitcoin network last night as well. And as a result, transaction fees with the sale-off happening and reduction in processing power, transaction fees are up near $40 right now per transaction as we record this episode. Which is basically the crux of this whole potential fork, isn't it? That because the size is so small of each block, it is getting increasingly expensive to pay the transaction fees. So it's inevitable that they're going to have to raise that block size at some stage, you would have thought. Yeah, and in the announcement, it kind of implies this problem isn't going away, and maybe we'll all be a little more motivated in the future to solve it. <laughs> and right now, I'm feeling a little motivated to solve it because I couldn't imagine trying to buy goods right now with transaction fees that high. You can't use it for buying and selling goods. You, you can use it to trade the currency, but with fees that high it's almost impossible to buy anything with the online window that typically is presented to a user when they're purchasing with Bitcoin. There's a limited window for the confirmations of the transaction. And if, say, your transaction isn't confirmed, and in this example, 15 minutes, it's canceled. Yeah, but if you're sending it to someone and you don't really care how long it takes, then you can just send it to the network and just wait, right? Yeah. And that's why I say if you're just trading the currency and whatnot, it's not a big deal. It's only when you're really trying to buy and sell goods and you want to buy and sell the goods before the price drops any further. <laughs> yeah. So we also talked last week about this idea of each transaction taking as much energy as a house does in a week. And that has basically prompted a new, at this stage, kind of vaporware currency called Chia. Ch-ch-ch-chia. That's a great name. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but in this case, instead of feeding it CPU power, you feed it storage. Yeah, but this isn't a unique idea. There are other currencies that do this, but other currencies don't have Bram Cohen behind them. He's the guy who invented BitTorrent. So he's a big name, and he's raised a lot of money already in VC funding to build this thing. There is something a little new here with Chia, and it's really kind of a combination of multiple techniques. I guess one of the typical weak points of proof-of-storage cryptos is people were doing sneaky attacks where they'd add a bunch of storage and then covertly remove it and trick the network, and then I guess twirl their mustache and run off to the bank. And Chia has worked in a little a little fail-safe to that. It relies on proofs of space that have timers set on them. It combines that to disarm a wide array of attacks to which proofs of space are susceptible. So does this mean that 
along with graphics cards, now hard drives are going to be really expensive. Maybe. I guess. I picture this like a like a network here at the studio where we have a dozen machines and they probably have about 80% of their hard drive free on most of them. So I don't really see this as purchasing additional storage just to get the cryptocurrency, but more like using my storage that I'm not currently utilizing. Yeah, but if there's any money to be made in it, people will buy hard drives one day. <laughs> yeah, it'll give hoarders a whole new reason. <laughs> yeah, well, it'll make me get one because I've only got a few hundred gigabytes left in my desktop machine where I store everything. So maybe I'll have to uh, get a couple of, I don't know, eight terabyte disks or something. Or you go the other direction and you do it all on your phone. We talked recently also about Samsung integrating a Linux desktop option on some of their Galaxy smartphones when you put them in the DeX dock. And now we appear to have gotten a little proof of concept. Yeah, there's a video of it running now. And it says Ubuntu 16, whatever that is. Although, no, it does say 16.04 somewhere, uh, a little bit smaller, which is pretty cool that they've actually got a proof of concept I don't think that it is just a kind of mock-up, is it? It does appear to actually be running. We have a link to the article, which has this video embedded in it. Go to linuxactionnews.com slash 27. And in there, about the 12-second mark, you see a Linux on Galaxy app, and the user runs that. And then pretty quickly, you get the menu, like Joe was saying, for Ubuntu 16. Also worth noting, there's a plus button there, which would seem to indicate you could add other distributions, making good on Samsung's promise. And it, it seems to be like the, it's an app that is running the Linux environment. I'm not sure how it's doing it, if it's, if it's like VNC into an X session, which is running in a contained environment, or if it's a virtualized system and the, the, it's all contained within the app. It's not clear from the video, but the speed seems pretty respectable. And they even go as far as launching Eclipse and start doing native ARM development on the phone. And Eclipse launches pretty fast, closes pretty quick, the whole interface seems to be better than, say, a remote X2Go interface would be. Yeah, proving that they're really marketing this at developers. Yeah, that was a point they made in the video at a minute and nine, with big white text that comes up on the screen that really makes the point, you can do native ARM development on this phone. And you could see how even maybe Android developers would like that for certain types of troubleshooting or bug fixing. This really could be aimed squarely at the developer market, sort of like the Dell Sputnik program is. Yeah, but that doesn't mean that us non-developers can't take advantage of the, the cool toys. Yeah, I mean, if this really works well, I would be honestly tempted by this. I was sort of thinking about this story on the drive down to the studio this morning. And I got with me my backpack, and I have my laptop, and my charger, and I have a USB to Ethernet in there, and I have all these like little extra things that I might need someday. And it's a lot to carry around. And it's on a, I'm here on a Sunday morning, I'm looking at them, like, I'm bringing my stupid bag with me to work again. And at that point, thinking about the story, I thought, it would be kind of nice for what I need to do today. I just need to browse the web, respond to Telegram, use some docs. I could do all of that if I could put the phone in a dock and just have it in my pocket. It honestly, it puts another check in the Samsung column for me. I'm not likely to buy a Samsung phone anytime soon, but if this becomes a regular feature that is well executed, uh, it, it will make me reconsider that position. Yeah, and if it does well and is popular, then it may spread to other OEMs as well, which would be nice. Although thinking about it, Google and their phones would be the obvious choice there, but they've moved away from developers towards consumers, or at least that's what they're trying to do, aren't they, with the Pixel line. Now they've completely abandoned Nexus. 
Yeah, I did feel like the Nexus line was more aimed at developers. The Pixel does seem to be more consumer-based, but I have to say, if they added this functionality to the Pixel 3, if there was like a little code exchange between Google and Samsung, and they added this to the Pixel 3, boy, I think that would be a slam-dunk phone for me. Yeah, well, we've seen it working with Mario OS, so we know that it is possible. I don't think that it's... It's not exactly rocket science. It's using existing technologies that are there, LexD and LexC, and just containerization. And okay, it's it's one thing to say just a bit of that, but it's you're not having to reinvent the wheel. You're just having to combine things that already exist. Yeah, I think that's a great point. That is a that is a really fair point, is it's already built into the host operating system that Android is built on. But maybe Google wants us to think more about Chrome OS, and it just got a bit easier to run Windows apps on Chrome OS. Yeah, thanks to Crossover, which is based on Wine, you can run some Windows apps on Chrome OS, but there's kind of a few asterisks here. It has to be an x86-based Chromebook, and it has to be one that's capable of running Android applications. And the Play services. Yeah, which are the modern ones, basically. Not my old C720, unfortunately. It's the touchscreen ones that have come out in the last year or two that all support Android apps, and this is crossover as an Android app, which is allowing you to run Windows applications. The first example is Office, which seems a bit strange because Google wants everyone to use their own um, Google Docs, don't they? So it's strange that they would allow people to run Microsoft Office. I suppose once Crossover is approved to the Play Store, Google doesn't have much say in what Crossover enables you to do. And with the Chromebook, you got that full-size keyboard most of the time. It's kind of begging for Office application-type uses. But as a desktop Linux user of Crossover Office, what I wonder is if that UI that they've developed for this is going to make its way over to Linux. Codeweavers has been slowly revving the UI with each release pretty steadily, but the version they've released for Chrome OS is completely redesigned. And so I would, I'd really be curious if somebody at Codeweavers wants to get a hold of me at Chris LES, will that new version, that new UI make its way to the desktop? Because it looked pretty good. Yeah, hopefully. Well, speaking of looking good... Ubuntu is looking for a new theme and they don't want to pay for it. So they want volunteers from the community to uh, help them out. I like how you just go after they won't be willing to pay for it because that crossed my mind too. I was like, oh, a community theme. But you know what, Joe? They've had a lot of success with this in the past. So I'm a bit more of a believer these days than I used to be. Well, I don't think there's anything particularly wrong with the theme that they've got already in 1710. It's not amazingly beautiful, but it's certainly not ugly. Yeah, you would, you XFCE user. You would be totally fine with it. Well, yeah. Are you not fine with it? You know, it's 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 okay for a few days. Um, and then and then after that, I, I ended up putting Arc Dark, and that really looks tight. It looks really good. It's it's fine. It's usable. It's, I think, gets more crap than it should, because uh, the icons are very readable. It's all very, you, it's all very clear. It's well-designed. It's just old, Joe. That's all. It's just stale. But you can have this problem with the icons if you have a new theme that unless you make an icon for every possible application, you're not going to have consistency there, are you? Yeah, that's why I think they're taking a reasonable approach. Uh, They are going to do a fork, or at least they're going to start with something like Edwadia and then work on top of that as a base. And so it's not like they're creating it from whole cloth. Yeah, but it does kind of contradict this idea that they're still investing in the desktop because they don't really have much of a design team left and farming this stuff out to the community. It, it just feels like proof of my and original feelings that they were effectively abandoning the desktop to the community. And I know we've talked about how they're joining the GNOME advisory board and they're pulling their weight there. 
But this, this is the real nuts and bolts of the desktop, at least as far as the Ubuntu users are concerned. Okay, all the Wayland stuff and all of the plumbing is what really matters. But what the users are faced with is kind of like the final layer, isn't it? The, the gloss on top of it. And if that's just farmed out to the community, it just feels like a bit of a cop-out to me. I can see what you're saying. It's also pretty heavily connected to branding, which is generally important to these companies. I look at it like this. The problem with the theme is you can never please everybody, and a huge percentage of their more advanced users likely change the theme anyways. So how much do you really want to invest as a company who's trying to be very careful about profitability and making development of this project sustainable? How do you justify investing a whole bunch of staff time into something that a lot of people are going to change and a lot of people won't like anyways. It just seems like that is the kind of thing you want to punt to the community. And people who really care will install their own theme and people who don't care will just use the default. Yeah, I suppose. And it doesn't really affect me anyway. I'm just here using Greybird on XFCE. <laughs> That's true. Although maybe one day, if it's really successful, it'll work its way to XFCE. If they're basing it on Adwadia, you got a decent base to start with, with some minor, well, I shouldn't say that. That's not true. But with some solid modifications and improvements, you could have another base theme that they could use for years, and it could get passed around. It could become the next theme. I hear those guys over at System76 might have something they could try. <laughs> Linuxacademy.com slash unplugged. You go there to sign up for a free seven-day trial, and you support the show, and you get to learn more about Linux. Seven days, too, will give you enough time to poke around and try out their self-paced in-depth video courses. They have scenario-based labs, which is my favorite because that's what sticks with you. It gives you the real-world experience. You get SSH into the server, and you have a guide to go by, It'll match whatever distribution you've chosen for the guide. The virtual servers will match it. I love that. And if you ever get stuck, they have real human beings that can help you. And if you're super busy, if you've got a lot going on these days, you can rest assured that they'll work with your busy schedule. They have a course scheduler that helps you set goals, stick with them, remind you about things that are coming up, and you can sort of turn it up and turn it down as you need. A community stacked full of Jupiter Broadcasting members and study tools that are extremely useful and you can download and take them with you, like audio and text. And speaking of going with you, they have iOS and Android apps as well. It's a platform to learn more about Linux and every cloud and DevOps topic, including AWS, OpenStack, Azure, all that big stuff. LinuxAcademy.com slash unplugged. Can you believe it's five years since the Linux Steam client was first released? Five whole years. No, actually, that doesn't, that doesn't register for me because I still recall talking about the rumors if it was really going to happen or not and looking at like leaked images and Windows installers and covering Michael Arbel's early coverage of it where he said it was going to happen. I'm, all of that still is very, very vivid in my memory. Yeah, and presumably you were pretty excited about it at the time. I was. I still am. Um, it's for me personally, Steam on Linux has reached the point where I'm pretty much 100% satisfied. All of the games I want to play are available for me, and I have now way more games than I ever have time to play. I've absolutely been saturated. It's just, it's a great problem to have. And even if Linux isn't huge for the Steam platform, it's made it completely possible for me to never need to boot into Windows. Do you think that's a common story with Linux users, or do you think there are people who are still desperate to get the AAA titles? On Linux? Yes and no. If you look at the top selling games on Steam right now, like Rocket League and Shadow Tactics and Counter Strike Global Offensive and Rust and Ark Survival Evolved, Civilization games, those are all available for Linux and they're the number one sellers. So they're, 
some of the t- some of the AAA games aren't available for Linux, but the ones that are selling the most on Steam appear to be available for Linux. So you think that it is quite a healthy situation? You see, I am totally outside this whole world. It's it's very much an academic interest for me because I don't really play games at all. So it's difficult for me to judge. But you have historically been quite a gamer, haven't you? I've always tried to be a gamer. I've unsuccessfully tried to be a gamer constantly because I love the idea of just sitting down and having a great gaming experience. And I get them from time to time. I've recently been really enjoying Rust. Mostly it's because I'm playing with other people that I really like. The elephant in the room about gaming on Linux, specifically Steam, is that if you look at the raw numbers, it appears Linux is doing quite bad. It's recently at 0.35%, which is below the 2% it nearly was at the peak when Steam launched on Linux. So it would appear from the raw numbers that it's way down. However, that's also because Steam itself has grown considerably, and there's certain aspects to the market that are only available to Windows users, like the HTC Vive platform. So I think the state of Linux gaming is stronger than it has been, but we're sort of all waiting for the transition to Vulkan to land. Because that looks to be very good for Linux. There's a couple of games, speaking of AAA games that came out, a racing game recently came out. Gorgeous game, AAA title, day one support for Linux, and it's a Vulkan game. And friend of the show Wimpy was telling me about some of the unbelievable frame rates he was getting using external graphics and it's it's very promising it's over it's over 100 frames per second on a triple a title using vulcan on day one launch for linux i wonder what it'd get under windows for that presumably a little bit more knowing wimpy i bet you he will test all of those things i hope we will hear a full report from him soon and it's very promising over 100 frames per second using external graphics on linux that doesn't that doesn't even seem like something that would have even been possible a few years ago and if yeah. that trend continues, we might see more and more games come to Linux just as a result of all the fundamental technologies being supported by Linux. Yeah, but the whole Steam on Linux was a precursor to the Steam machines, wasn't it? And that has just not really worked out at all, has it? Yeah, it seemed like a big hedge. It seemed like a market reaction to the Windows Store and to Microsoft strategies. But that threat isn't necessarily gone. And Microsoft is continually getting more competitive in the gaming industry. They've really integrated the Xbox Live platform into all gaming aspects. The new Minecraft is heavily integrated into the Xbox experience, even if you're playing it on the Windows platform. That continues to be a fundamental threat to Valve's business model. So you think they're keeping it on the back burner and are ready to pounce if necessary then? I'd like to say that's the case. I'd really like to say that Valve is one of those companies that's unlike most companies in the tech field and that they're willing to invest over time slowly, maybe even for a decade into something, just to make sure it's right before they fully launch it or it really takes over. They're, They're willing to take that slow burn approach for a lot of their projects. So I'm inclined to hope that's the case, Joe. But we just got to wait and see. And meanwhile, we're still getting great games for Linux. So as long as my Linux desktop is still getting great games, I really don't care what happens with Steam machines. Yeah, but the thing is that all it takes is one game to not be available to drive people to Windows or to keep people on Windows, rather. There's a person I know, I tried to convert him to Linux. I tried to say, look, you've got Steam available. And if not, then you've got Play on Linux and Wine and stuff. But there was just one game that he wanted to play. It was some stupid casino game or something. I don't even know. And it just wouldn't work. And so he was like, well, I'm not using Linux then. It's as simple as that. So until you get 100% of the Steam games available for Linux, you're going to have a lot of people who will just not move over. 
Don't you feel like that's true for gaming in general, though? Like, I'm tempted right now by a Nintendo Switch because it's the only platform that has Mario Odyssey. And, um, you know, that would technically be taking gameplay time away from Linux. I think the nice thing that Linux has going for it is I can't install the Xbox OS on my Nintendo Switch. So I can play the hell out of Mario Odyssey for six months and then be bored and want to load a different OS on my Nintendo to play a different game. Can't do it. At least with x86 hardware, you can be drawn to Windows for a game, and if time heals those wounds and makes that game available for Linux, they at least have the option of utilizing the same hardware investment. And that gives Linux a slight edge over, like, typical consoles or other platforms. Yeah, that's true. And you can dual boot as well, which you can't really do on consoles these days. So, yeah, there is the option there to have both. Of course, Munich doesn't see it that way. It appears, this is based on translation in the Linux Unplugged subreddit, that the vote to move to Windows 10 in Munich has completed. It's done. It's over, and it's been decided. Over a two-year period, 29,000 PCs will be migrated from Linux to Windows 10. The dream is officially over. The poster child for um, source in government is dead. Joe, why do you suppose they had to have their own customized version of Linux, which ended up being a huge hassle, but they're totally fine with stock Windows 10? Well, it's politics, isn't it? And incompetence of politicians. We've been saying this throughout the whole thing, that if they'd gone with Red Hat, SUSE, Ubuntu, and gone for a properly supported Linux, okay, it would have been a little bit more upfront investment, but we probably wouldn't be having this conversation now. They wouldn't have gone back to Windows because it wouldn't have necessarily worked out cheaper to to do so. So why they rolled their own, presumably cost is the only thing I can think of. It must have been cheaper for them to do that. They must have done the maths of that, but not thinking ahead about the maintenance cost of it all. That surely could be the only driver here, unless there was some ideological reason that they wanted to create something that other people could benefit from. But that just doesn't really make sense, does it? Because everyone can benefit, at least from Ubuntu. You know, this is my recollection, and I've been following this story so long that I've forgotten more about it than I can recall. But my recollection was they specifically went with their own distribution because they made tweaks that made the migration from Windows for their users easier, made accommodations for their network and internet, and allowed them to package custom versions of some of the major software, like OpenOffice. I don't remember if you recall, but... They forked their own version of OpenOffice with their own certain mm. plugins. And so that sort of necessitated Limux. And then all of these customizations became very hard to move forward to future versions of Linux they wanted to base Limux off of. And they kind of got trapped in their own technical debt to a degree. And then the users got frustrated with the experience. And that's finally what broke this issue, is the users were just getting sick and tired of a system that wasn't up to snuff. You've got to imagine people come in from other companies, they come in from other areas of government, and they see this where they don't have these problems, and it's it must be ridiculous to them. And so this user pushback just grew and grew and grew over time because it's a huge project to develop your own operating system, especially one that's highly customized, and then to ship it to end users' workstations and get them upgraded and keep them up to date. It's a massive task in a government like that. And... To your point, if they'd gone with the mainstream distribution, they would have had that burden removed, but they would have had a higher initial training cost. But that would have ultimately worked out to be much better for them, probably. It definitely wouldn't have been as embarrassing, because this thing has been a public sideshow now for a decade. Yeah, and it's not done any favors for Linux and open source generally, has it? 
if you think about other governments or whatever thinking about making the switch, this has got to really put them off, even though they don't necessarily drill down into the details and realize they rolled their own and didn't go with a mainstream distro. It just looks bad generally, doesn't it? Well, it's sure going to give some great quotes for total cost of ownership quotes by Microsoft salesmen. I'll give it that. Yep. Speaking of um, surprising the open source community, Apple will no longer be developing cups under the GPL. This snapped a few heads around this week. Yeah, they're going to move to the Apache license, which, okay, it's still open source, it's still free software. So does it really matter? Well, you've got to kind of look a bit deeper than that, haven't you, to realize why it ultimately might well matter. Cups is the common Unix printing system, and it's been the engine for printing on Linux for ages now. And years ago, it was bought by Apple. And everyone always wondered, well, what's going to happen now? And they have been, to their credit, pretty good stewards of the project. It continues on. They hired the developer full-time. They give him a full-time wage to work on Cups at Apple. But my understanding has been there have been companies, hardware manufacturers, that have been knocking on Apple's door and saying, we want to bundle Cups in our print server. We want to bundle it right here on chip with our little Ethernet-attached print server. Can we do that? And Apple says, is the source code's available? It's under the GPL. And the hardware manufacturers go, oh, no thanks. And they go roll their own solution. What, you think the GPL is that toxic? I don't think it is, but apparently this is some of these hardware manufacturers' opinion based on what I've read. Yeah, and so the much more permissive Apache license means that they're not going to care about that sort of thing. Yeah, it means we're probably going to start seeing embedded cups that then doesn't get updated for ages. <laughs> so it's yeah. not necessarily going to be a good thing, but it might be better than what we have now. Might it though? Because isn't the risk here that Apple will create a two-tiered system where they'll have Apple cups, which will be proprietary, but it'll be based on the open source one. Um, kind of like with their Bluetooth thing, isn't it? Where you've got it's based on a relatively open standard of Bluetooth, but then they bundle their proprietary stuff on top to make it better. And that's what makes their product a more appealing uh, proposition for people. We'll see. I mean, I feel like printing is such a solid industry now. It's it's sort of like if we had to just take cups that we had today, the GPL version, and Apple never wrote another line of code, We'd. Pr- I feel like we'd be okay. We're like in the Thunderbird situation here where we kind of know what we got. We, we're not really seeing new radical printing devices come on the market that totally change everything. Cups has a lot of runway, even in its current version. Tons of things you can do with it. I feel like we'd be pretty good in this p- particular position. Apple can do whatever the hell they want, because at the end of the day, we still have the code that was licensed under GPL. Yeah, but we are moving to driverless printing and stuff. There is innovation still happening there. And if yeah, Cups yeah. doesn't continue to keep up with that stuff, then it could be left behind. I agree. And I think the other story here is what about all the contributors over the years that have contributed to this project, assuming it would remain GPL? Was there some sort of contributors agreement that they assigned that said it would be okay to relicense? I believe there was. And is this maybe another opportunity to talk about these contributor agreements again? Because some of these developers may have contributed code under good faith that it would remain a GPL project. Of course, they're the ones that would have signed the agreement. Well, that's the thing. If you sign the agreement, then faith is the right word. There is no evidence to prove that it is going to remain under GPL. Yeah. So you're signing away your rights to that. And if you don't like that, then don't sign the document. I tend to think in this particular story, the sky is not falling. Because if Apple was going to pull the rug out from underneath cups, they probably would have done it years ago. And they continued to invest in this project since they purchased it, since they hired this guy. 
I would imagine they're just going to continue investing in it now with a different license because in a way, it's in Apple's best interest for there to be more Cups users because it means print the printing experience on Macs will be better. Yeah, that's true. Although, to be fair, these days, who has a printer outside of their office? Yeah, but when I do print, I love it. It feels retro. Like, this is great. It smells good. I love the laser printer, Joe. <laughs> well, I've got a laser printer, and it always worked in Ubuntu 12.04, Ubuntu 12.04, and then I updated to 14.04, and it's never worked since. So I have to boot into Windows for it. I'm sorry, did you say 14.04? Yeah. Yeah, I'm I, I'm having a real hard time feeling bad for you, Joe. <laughs> I'm having a... No, no, well, and 16.04 as well. Oh, okay. I'm saying since I updated to 14.04, whenever that was, it has just never worked. And then I updated to 604, tried it again, no joy. You know, this is one of the things I love about Cups. If you dig around in the config, you can turn on the web interface and you get even way more powerful options, including just manually setting up an IP printer that's dead simple. It's a great web interface for Cups. It's, a, it's one of my favorite projects, and it was one of the original projects that let me set up a ton of Linux boxes at a company because Windows couldn't handle their print load and Cups handled it like a champ. Yeah. Well, you can go in to do all that config, or you can just quickly reboot into your wife's Windows 7 partition. <laughs> Either way, as long as you're going to linuxactionnews.com slash subscribe and finding all of the ways to get this show every single week, I'm happy. Yeah, and if you go to linuxactionnews.com slash contact, you can find ways to get in touch with us. And please consider supporting the entire network at patreon.com slash jupitersignal. We'll be back next Monday with our weekly take on the latest Linux and open source news. I'm at Chris LAS. I'm at Joe Ressington. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next week. See you later.